0: son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. you that tonight the choir will be uh, filling the area behind me along with the orchestra. And uh, you have a terrific opportunity to come and to celebrate the goodness of God in sending His Son to us as uh, uh, the choir presents the Christmas message to us. So I hope you'll be here uh, for that. Uh, This morning we turn, again, to the fruit of the Spirit. We haven't forgotten about Galatians 5.22. For those of you who uh, perhaps have uh, uh, come in uh, just uh, today and, and aren't aware of what's been going on, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians, and we have been seeing that this letter of Paul is about the authentic gospel, that God saves us, He gives us new life, Um, He delivers us from the kingdom of darkness. All these things, this is done by the grace of God. It is solely the work of Christ on the cross. When he shed his blood, our sins are forgiven. There's nothing else to be added to that. It is simply the grace of God. It is the grace of God that brings us into the kingdom. It is the grace of God that works us through and works us and brings us to the end. It is grace start to finish and grace everywhere in between. So this is the authentic gospel. We've been looking at that. Uh, Then in chapter 5, Paul says, well, uh, in the light of this authentic gospel, in the light of the grace of God, we need to put away the deeds, the lusts, and desires of the flesh. He names those. And then he says, and in its place, live out the fruit of the Spirit. Now, one of the things we've been trying to emphasize is that the fruit of the Spirit is not new legalism through the back door. It's not just saying that, well, you're saved by grace, but now you need to do these things to get the Spirit. Uh, You have to have love. You have to have joy. You have to have peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all those kinds of things. You have to do that, and then the Holy Spirit will come into your life. Quite the contrary, because it is grace, the Holy Spirit comes into your life as a believer in Jesus Christ and brings the fruit, the work of the Spirit. We are called then to live this life filled by, guided by, empowered by, shaped by, defined by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the authentic gospel. This is grace all the way through. And so this morning we come to the fruit of the Spirit is grace goodness. Now, first of all, think about what that word good means, it's it's a very simple word, everybody knows what it means to say something is good, oh really? We say someone is a good student, what do you mean? Do you mean that they are a good student because they study well and they have good study habits, they get their work done on time, they always get the right answer, if it's a math problem they can actually work word problems in math and that's a good student? Or do you mean this is a student who is morally good, who is helpful to others, who is respectful of the teaching uh, situation, who is, who is a, a, a cooperative member of the classroom? What do you mean when you say a good student? Are you talking about, well, you just do things really well, or are you talking about some kind of internal moral mechanism? You know, this, this is why uh, we always need to be careful when we think, say things like, this is a good baby. You know, and normally what we mean is, this is a good baby because he doesn't cry. He sleeps through the night, you know. He says please when he wants to be fed, you know. he's, says, you know, mom, dad, don't mean to bother you, but if you have time, you know, change would be nice, but hey, don't, don't worry about it. Oh, what a good baby. Like it's a bad baby who cries, you know, like this baby sits up at night saying, how can I frustrate mom and dad? I know. I think I'll cry. I'll cry until they have to get up and come check on me, and I'll fall asleep just before they get here. <laughs> All babies are good babies. All babies are wonderful babies, and here's why. They're just doing baby stuff. They're just doing baby things, and they're doing it extremely well. That's really what we mean when we say someone is a good student. They do student stuff really well. They are appropriate in their studenthood. Uh, You know, whatever it means to be a student, they are well-defined by that. That's really what we mean when we say someone is good. They are living out in a way appropriate to their design and appropriate to their purpose. Just so to say someone is a good person, and by that you mean they're they're moral and they're ethical, all you're really saying is God has a design for that person that we live ethically and morally, and they're doing it, and so they are in line, they are appropriate to God's design in their life. That's what you mean when you say a good person. See, in our world today, um, the the idea of good is, is sort of a relativistic term. Now, what is good? Well, what's good for me is not good for you. You know, I have my good stuff over here. You had your good stuff over there. And, you know, we'll just sort of live with it one with another. And, and, um, and we have this, this idea that, that good can sort of be redefined by one individual to another individual. Now, the problem with that is if my good is my good and your good is your good, how can I, I ever say, you know, you need to be better? And how can you ever tell me that I'm wrong in what I'm doing? I want to remind you that the people who sowed the killing fields thought they were being good in doing so. I want to remind you that those who set up and administered the concentration camps in the 1930s and 40s thought they were doing a good thing. I want to remind you that the people who set up the abortion clinics and killed the innocent think they are doing a good thing. I want to remind you that those who wrote the laws for Jim Crow thought they were doing a good thing. And if you went to them and said, no, what you're doing is bad, they say, how can you tell me that's bad? I'm doing a good thing. And so in a relative society, you don't know what's good, you don't know what's bad. Now, here's what happens for that. Once you decide that good and bad is just sort of relative, then the person with the power controls it. And they start passing laws, and they start forcing you to think a certain way. Once you have relative truth and relative goodness, the people in power can't let you have your opinion, and they can't prove that you're wrong because, after all, it's all relative, and so they have to start laws that control your thought process, and it leads to an intellectual fascism called political correctness. And so in this this regard, that that open-mindedness, it seems so wise and open-minded and accepting to say, well, you have your idea of good, and I have my idea, and this is all really great actually leads to bondage and leads to the destruction of society. See, good is doing and being what you were designed to do and be. And the fact is that God is the one who has designed us, and God is the one who determines what we are to be. That's why a nation needs to be under God. A nation needs to be under God who judges us who judges our laws, who judges our society, who judges our self-satisfied sort of uh, self-righteousness and complacency with our own goodness. We need to be a nation under laws because God is absolute, and His goodness is absolute. And that's why we know that God is good, and all the time, God is good. There's never a moment when God's goodness deserts Him there's never a situation or an instance in which God forgets to be good or fails to be good or doesn't know what it means to be God good. God is goodness itself. And so goodness is defined by the character and the nature of God. This is what we've seen with all of the fruit. All of the fruit of the Spirit reflects something about the character and the nature of God and the Holy Spirit working in our lives to bring God's nature and character to us to make us a new creation in Christ. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And so when we say the fruit is goodness, we're saying God's own goodness, His design for us is poured into our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. God is eternally, absolutely, majestically good. Now, if you will, for a moment, think about uh, Genesis chapter 1. You can turn there if you like, but you'll you'll recognize these verses. In In the very opening chapter of the Bible, we learn that God created the heavens and the earth. And then you remember what comes after that, that it, there are six days of creation. And on the first day, God creates the light, for example, and he, and, he, and he fills the universe. He fills his creation with light. And you remember what the Scripture says, that God saw that it was good. God looks at the light and he says, this is good. Now, he's not saying that the light is well-behaved, you know, the light is polite, you know, the light is good. And that he's saying the light is doing what I designed it to do. The light is illuminating the universe. The light is bringing to the forefront the glory and the majesty of the creator. The light is doing what God designed it to do. And so he looks at the light and he says, this is good. You remember he makes the sun and he makes the moon and hangs the stars in space and he looks at it and says, this is good. Why? Because the stars and the moon and the sun in their appointed courses are there to give glory, honor, and praise to God. This is why when you walk out into an open field around here, get away from the light pollution of Washington, D.C., so you can actually see the stars, you look up and you just stand in slack-jawed amazement at the glorious, majestic power of God to create such wonder. You look into the vast depths of the universe, space unimaginable, and you see the glory of God. That's why the stars are there. why the sun and the moon are there. And God looked and said, these are very good. He divides the land from the sea. He brings forth every li- living creature. He says, this is good. It is good because this life that springs up in a way that only a creator could bring it about, this life declares the goodness and the glory of God. It's very good. But I remind you on the sixth day that God said, let us make man in our own image. And so he created them, male and female, he created them, and he created the human race in his own image. And wonder of wonders, on that final day of creation, God looked at the universe. He looked at the majesty of the mountains. He looked at the glory of the seas. He looked at the wondrous beauty of the plains. And he looked at the human race, and he said, this is very good. When God created the human race, he created us for his glory. He created us that we would magnify him. He created us so that our whole lives would be spent in praise and worship and honor, adoration towards him. And when God saw that in his creation, he looked at the first man and the woman, and he said, this is good. This is very, very good. See, that's the purpose. That's why you were designed the way you are, that you would give glory, honor, and praise to God. You wake up tomorrow morning, you say, I wonder what I'll do today. I can tell you exactly what you need to do. You need to praise God. I can tell you exactly what you need to do with your time. You need to worship him and honor him and exalt him and lift up the name of Jesus because that's what you were created to do. That's what is good in your life. But you know what happened. The man and the woman looked at God and said, you know, we have a better plan. We have a better design. And so they departed from the goodness of God. They departed from the design, the created purpose that God had set forth. They departed from that. And they said, we have a better plan. And by leaving the goodness of God, evil came into the world. Because they would not have God's will for their lives, evil came in to God's creation. And as a result, the human race has been distorted and dysfunctional ever since. As a result of that, we live lives that don't bring honor and glory to God, but just give testimony to the confusion of our thinking and to our absolute inability to fulfill our purpose. And and instead of this human race being a glorious wonder, this human race is a puzzlement and a question. This human race has fallen because of our sin against God, and we have lost goodness because we have lost the goodness of God. This, by the way, helps us understand the problem of evil in the world. Uh, We can't talk about all of it. There's a lot of philosophical uh, sorts of things that people talk about, but have you ever heard someone say something like, how can there be a good God if there's suffering in the world? How can babies suffer and die, the innocent? If there's a good and gracious God in the world, how can people be murdered if there's a good and gracious God in the world? How can believers be beheaded and crucified even today if there's a good and gracious God in the world? Why am I suffering the way I am if there's a good and gracious God in the world? The answer is, because of our sin we have departed from this good and gracious God. And not only is the human race fallen, but the entire creation now is groaning, groaning under the weight of our rebellion, waiting for the revelation of those who've been adopted as sons of God. The entire creation now groaning, affected by our sin, so that the glory of God is, is muted as the stars would proclaim. And now we look into the heavens, and we're indifferent. Imagine that. We look at the majesty of the mountains and we say, ho-hum. In the Greek, that's two words, ho-hummus. And, you know, but how is it that we do this? Because of our sin, we look at God's creation and we don't see the glory of God. And we worship the creature rather than the creator. We have fallen so low and so far down. How can there be evil in the world? By the way, the person who asked that just asked him, well, if there is no God... How can you account for goodness in the world? You see, if you, if you say, this is evil, you know, the concentration camps were evil, therefore there must not be a God. Well, if there's no God, who cares? You know, one of the greatest arguments for the existence of God is that most people care. You know, there's that tiny microscopic vestige left that has a sense that that's wrong. But you can't just say, well, that's wrong because I think it's wrong, because the other guy doesn't think it's wrong. Somewhere there has to be an absolute standard of goodness, of right and wrong. And where can that reside except in the very character and nature of God? So, you know, the person who says, I don't believe in God because there's evil in the world, you just ask them, well, why do you care? If there's no God, why do you care? If there's no God, it's just, you know, kind of interesting, but really, get over it. No, I'm getting philosophical on you now. So this helps us understand the... the, uh, Uh, that the problem of evil in the world, it's because of our rejection of the goodness of God. But let me tell you how good God is. When God looked down on the human race, and he saw us in our sin, and understand what it is for God to look upon a sinner. Understand what it is for God who is gracious and and loving and beautiful and kind to look down upon a human race that has distorted itself and is dysfunctional and is cruel to one another and is disdainful one another and takes what is noble and trashes it and takes what is trash and dirty and lifts it up as though it was art. What it would take for a holy, righteous God to look upon us in our sin. Yet the goodness of God is this. He not only knew us in our condition, in our sinful estate, but while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. Oh, the goodness of God that we see in the cross of Jesus Christ as he hung there with my sins, crushing the life out of him, and yet loving me to death. Oh, the kindness and the goodness of God who sent Jesus Christ that the sins of the world would be Uh, atone for, and that we might have forgiveness by faith in him. Oh, the goodness of God. Don't ever doubt the goodness of God. Never doubt the goodness of God. Well, then, I I want first to now look at at Psalm 34. We can only look at verses 8 and 9 because uh, uh, David talks about how we can experience goodness and the goodness of God. Uh, I, I wish we had time to look at all the verses. The, the, the front matter to eight, the, to verse 8 is really instructive, and the after part of it, I mean, it just sets it in context. But I think you'll, you'll get the gist of it. In Psalm 34, verse 8, David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just taste and see that the Lord is good. You ever say to yourself, I don't see, see how I can trust God. I, I don't see how I could." I can believe that. I don't, I don't see how I can give my life. Well, of course you can't, but the Holy Spirit of God gives you the power. The Holy Spirit of God gives you the understanding. The Holy Spirit of God gives you the courage of faith. And you're saying, well, I don't know if I can live that life uh, for God that I'm supposed to live in Christ. I don't, I don't know if I can live the life of faith. Just take a taste. I'm telling you, you take a taste of the goodness of God. It's better than potato chips. It's better than cashew nuts. By the way, buy planters if you're getting me some. The off-brands don't cut it. But you taste the goodness of God, and you want more. And you taste the goodness of God, and you want more. Taste the goodness of God and see... How good he is towards us. You just step out in faith and accept the promises of God in Christ Jesus. The promise that says if you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if you're tired, if you're exhausted, come to me, I'll give you rest. Take the, the promise of Christ who said that when you're down, fallen, and, and when you're crushed, and when you're bruised, and when you're wounded, he says, neither do I condemn you. Rise, go, sin no more. The, the promise of Christ who when we come to him say, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. We hear Him. And say, I am willing, to be healed. Oh, come to Christ and taste and see that the Lord is good. Very quickly, then, David goes on and says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, David knew something about refuge. He was accustomed to having an army chasing him out of his capital city. I mean, he was used to Saul chasing him. He was used to uh, the Philistines chasing him. He was accustomed to even his own son, Absalom, chasing him. So he knew a lot about having to be on the run and looking for a place of safety. And so David quite often had to find a refuge, a place of safety. And he says here, you are blessed. When you take your refuge in the goodness of God, when you take your refuge in who he is, and, 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 and you are just wrapped in the safety of his arms. And when the assaults of the world are threatening to tear you down and to destroy you and to break into small pieces, how blessed you are to find safety in the hands of God. When you're coming into a life difficult situation and all you have are doubts and questions and confusions and, and the threat there is you're just going to wind up with your head spinning going nowhere, blessed you are if you find safety in the hands of God. When you come into a life situation and into a relationship, and it's just tearing you up and breaking you apart, and you don't know how to respond, you don't know what to do, take your refuge in God and in the safety of the hollow of his hand. And that's how you know the goodness of God, because he does not cast us out ever, ever at all. And so, first, taste See the goodness of the Lord. Secondly, take refuge in him. And thirdly, verse 9, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Look, folks, I know church history well enough to know that believers in Jesus Christ have gone hungry. I know that they have gone naked. I know that they have been beaten. I know that they have been enslaved. I know that they have been imprisoned. I know that the people of God who have trusted in him have had their lives turned upside down, their property taken away from them. I know that even now in places in this world they face crucifixion like their Lord because they believe and will not recant the name of Jesus. I know that happens, but those who fear God lack for no good thing that he would give to us. You have no other need but for the Father. You have no other need but for the presence of the Father by faith in the Son. You have no other need but to live in the Spirit. And so when you fear God, when you live for Him, you don't lack for anything at all. You know, the world says, you know, this fear of God, that's got to be an unhealthy thing. Fear is unhealthy. We go, we go to, to, uh, to to psychologists to try to get rid of our phobias. Look, let me tell you something. The fear of God, the fear of God is a wondrous thing. It's not as though we enter into the courts, court of God and into the presence of God, and we are afraid He's going to zap us. We're afraid He's going to be mad at us. We're afraid that He's going to point to us and say, you know that thing you did that nobody saw but I did? It's about time we even the score here and <laughs> flips us up into, a, in, into, a, into damnation or something. We don't enter into the courts with fear. We enter in with boldness. You know why? We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Our sins are, don't enter into the courtroom because because of the blood of Jesus. Our sins are taken from us as far as the east is from the west. And in Christ we stand pure for the first time and for all eternity. In Jesus Christ we walk into the presence of God. And the fear that we have is the reverence and the awe of the majestic grace and mercy of God. Oh, fear the Lord. You know, all you saints, for those who fear him, have no lack. God is infinitely good. His goodness is awesome. Now, this is how we understand Romans 8 See, goodness has to do with fulfilling the, the purpose and the design uh, that God has for your life. That's what it means to, to have goodness in your life. We've, we've uh, abandoned that through our sin. God restores it to us through the shed blood of Christ as we come by faith to the cross. So that's restored to us. Now, in that light, in that, in that flow, Romans 8.28, you're familiar with it. I'll just read it for you. We know that those who love God, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That those who love him, those who have a passion for him, those who can't get enough of him, God works for their good We don't see it every day. We don't see it with our limited vision all the time. You know, there are are moments when we question and we ask God, you know, where's the goodness here? How is this working out? I don't know why this is happening, but folks, we have read the last chapter of the book. We have read the last revelation of Jesus Christ. We know that God's purpose is to bring us to that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And we'll just band together and we'll start singing, every one of us on key, amazing miracles of God, but we'll start singing. (laughs) The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Who's got the next line? Hallelujah! 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 Folks, read the revelation. Hallelujah! There's four of them. Three's not enough. We know that's coming. And we know that those who love God, that he is causing all things to work together for this goodness when we are called according to His purpose. Now, Paul draws that out a little bit. Let me, let me give you verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8. It says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And we'll leave that for our uh, theological class. But um, actually, this is a glorious term. Not know what that word predestined means? I'm, I'm not going to go to the ins and outs of the philosophy of free will. Here's what that word predestined means. God did it, and nobody can stop him. God chose to do it, and you can't frustrate him. God's plan is perfect, and nobody can bend it. Because those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is your purpose in life, to look like Jesus. You know. This is why you're here to be conformed to the image of God's own dear Son. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. That's what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. That's why every one of these fruit as we look at them are reflective of the character and the nature of God and how that then comes into our lives. That God is love and so we love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That God is infinitely worthy of praise and and honor and adoration and so we rejoice in his presence. God is infinitely in charge and in control and And so we have peace. You know, all those things that are part of who God is, poured into our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the gift of God's grace. and Because He foreknew us and predestined us we are being conformed to the image of his dear son so that Jesus might be the firstborn of many brethren, of many children. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, God causes all things to work together for this good that you would glorify God no matter the situation, the problem, the heartache, the pain, the, the exhaustion, whatever it is, you glorify God in it. And that's why goodness is the fruit and the work of the Spirit in us. God is infinitely good. That's what goodness is. And the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. It's the goodness of the Father poured into our lives through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me me conclude with this. You remember that a ruler came up to Jesus. This is Luke 18 if you've got your uh, text and you're able to scroll through it too. This is Luke 18, verse 18. A ruler came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Seems like a good question. You know, what, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Now, you know, if I'm this ruler, okay, I say something like, Jesus, I was only being polite. <laughs> you know, I didn't, that wasn't the point of the question. But Jesus says, look, you just said good teacher. Did you think about what that word means? Because you're going to ask me about eternal life. You're going to ask me about spending all eternity in the presence of the Father who is infinitely holy, righteous, and good. You just called me good teacher. Have you thought about what that means? Well, I guess, you know, there's a lot of people who call Jesus good teacher. Most people mean by that, well, he, he just had nice stories. He had good illustrations. He had a nice teaching technique. He was able to bring things down to the level of his audience so they could understand it. He was engaging. He was interesting. Jesus was a good teacher because whenever he spoke, we listened and rapt attention and hung on every word, sort of like you're doing now. And so uh, we, we said, you know, he's a good teacher. She said, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why did you call me good? Let's define our terms. No one is good except God alone. There is no other goodness apart from God. There's sort of a shadowy, hazy reflection of the goodness of God. Um, You know, there's sort of a, a human understanding of goodness. It'll fail you. I just talked about that a moment ago. But there's no goodness apart from God. There's no one good except God. Now, notice Jesus didn't say, and so we must understand that I'm not a good teacher. He said, No, I'm a good teacher. But understand what you just said. You said that as I'm speaking to you, the very goodness of God incarnate, come in the flesh, is teaching you this. And then he goes on to explain it to him. Now, understand. There's no goodness apart from God. And that's why it is amazing grace. It is amazing grace that the Holy Spirit pours that goodness into our lives. And as the goodness of God comes into our lives, it's not as though, wow. I am such a good person now. I am doing good things. It is. Rather, God is so good and kind and gracious in me, and he calls me to this, and I will do this, and I will obey, and I will share, and I will love, and I will exhibit the goodness of God in my life so that others would see Jesus in me, exalted and lifted up. And oh, how wonderful that it's the Holy Spirit that does that. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is goodness in the life of the believer. And beloved, if you will but give, your heart to Christ, if you will but give your life to Christ, if you will but put your life into into step of faith, faith, faith in Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit comes in and the goodness of God is planted in you. And then you are fulfilling the reason God created you in the first place. You're fulfilling that purpose and that design that you would give God the praise, the honor and the glory in all all things. And then when the Holy Spirit bringing that goodness to you so that you would glorify Glorify the Father. Then God, your Creator, looks at you, and He sees you doing what He designed you to do, and He looks at your life, and He sees His Son, and He says, this is very, very good. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, over and over and over again, we see Your love for us, Your compassion, Your mercy. Over and over and over again, we see how you come to us not by any merit of our own, but simply because of your grace toward us. I thank and praise you for that. And I ask this morning that as we've assembled in this place together before your throne of grace, that now your Holy Spirit would rest upon us. Father, for the believer in Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give courage of faith, courage to be obedient, courage to speak and witness and bear testimony. Father, that your Holy Spirit would give the courage and the strength to be loving and kind and gracious, that your Holy Spirit would give us the wisdom that we would live lives of goodness. Father, for that soul who is here today, For whom it's an alien concept that Jesus is Lord and Savior. I ask your Holy Spirit to work in that heart. Bring conviction of sin. Father, bring the courage of faith. Bring the confession of of Jesus. And bring the conversion of the heart. Father, I ask this all in Jesus' name.